are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Open your Bible this morning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and I want to share with you several verses beginning with verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and following. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Wherefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And now let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, more than I want to live, I want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And especially as I speak on this subject this morning, I pray that uh, the message will be a blessing to the people, that it will be clear instructions, and that it will create a hunger in the hearts of some to be sold out for God 100% and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, the best I know how I yield to Thee, I'd rather die ere I open my eyes and face the congregation than to preach without You. I claim Your presence and power now. In Jesus' name, amen. I've done something I do not do very often. I've put my outline in the back of my Bible, and I've changed my subject this morning after the choir sung. And I want to speak this morning on the Spirit-filled life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I've traveled over 1,500 miles this week, spoken several times. One of our dear men here flew me to Thomasville, Georgia. Monday night I spoke there, again on Tuesday night. On the way back to the airport, the pastor said, May I ask you some questions? And I said, Yes, you may. 
He says, was there a definite time in your life when you could say you were baptized with the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit or whatever expression you want to use? I took about 30 minutes and did not complete the answer, but attempted to answer the pastor's question. Later on in the week, I had another preacher ask me the same question. And then the choir comes and sings this morning the song about the need for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Billy Sunday used to come to the platform and open his Bible to preach, and he'd always open it to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. He never opened to the passage he was preaching on. He'd always have his notes on his outline and his scripture references. didn't need to open his Bible. He'd lay his sermon outline down, so I'm told. At the opening of Isaiah chapter 61, in verse 1 of that chapter says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. I think the reference has to do with our Lord Jesus Christ because he later quoted it in the New Testament. But I think it's right that Billy Sunday could claim the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit as he preached. But I decided in 1961 that if I ever got anywhere for God, I needed something that I didn't have then. And I was in a bookstore, and I was browsing through, and I pulled off the bookshelf a book entitled The Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians, written by G. Gilchrist Lawson. And I began to read through that book, and I read the experience of uh, D.L. Moody. I read where Moody told how that in New York City he was walking up the street one day and, and seeking for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, or as he termed it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said, the power of God came so mightily upon him that he thought he'd die. And he said, I hurried to the home of a friend of mine and asked that I may borrow a room. And he said, I went to that room alone and prayed to God that he would stay his power lest I should die. I read the experience of A.J. Gordon. I read the prayer of A.J. Gordon. His prayer went something like this, be thorough with me, Jesus, be thorough with me. I read the 13-point covenant of Christmas Evans, the one-eyed, spirit-filled preacher. Now, I remember one point of his covenant was, Prosper thou my ministry as I did the Rollins, and he named and Whitfield and several others. The impediments in the way of my progress removed, he said. What he was saying is, I want what the Rollins had, I want what Whitfield had, I want what the others had. I read the experience of Billy Sunday. I read the experience of Savonarola, how he sat in a trance on his pulpit for four hours. No one left the building. As I read chapter after chapter in that book, The Deeper Experiences of Famous Christian, there rose up in my soul a desire for something. I didn't know exactly what to call it, nor I didn't know exactly how to go about getting it. But I knew that I didn't have it. It was like the man who preached, and he said, what we need in this church is unction. Someone went to him after the service and said, what is unction? He said, I don't know what it is, but I know what I ain't got it, he said. I knew I didn't have it. I wanted it. And I wanted it more than I wanted to live, and I prayed. I'd get up early in the morning, sometime four or five o'clock. I have gotten up earlier than that. I prayed for hours and hours and hours. Nothing seemed to happen. I prayed for days, and nothing seemed to happen. And I then began to argue with God some. 
I read in this book what happened to Whitfield. I read what happened to Moody. I read what happened to John Wesley. I read what happened to Savonarola and Billy Bray and Christmas Evans and A.J. Gordon and all the others. And I said, Lord, what's the difference in us? If you're the same God today you was then and your Holy Spirit is the same, why couldn't I have what they have? Why couldn't I preach with the power they preached with? And why couldn't I see some results in my ministry like they see in their ministry? Why must I forever stay here in this little basement building with outside toilet facilities? And a handful of people, why can't something exciting happen in my ministry too? Then I began to say something like this to God. You're playing favorites. You're doing things for D.L. Moody you wouldn't do for me. You did things for John Wesley you won't do for me. You did things for Billy Sunday you won't do for me. I prayed. And then I began to read books on the subject of the Holy Spirit. I read R.A. Torrey's book, The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit. I read book after book after book on the Holy Spirit. And maybe it was all my fault, but I became more confused than I was before I began to read. I had never at this time heard a sermon on the Holy Spirit. I had heard people talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I didn't know exactly what they meant by that. I would visualize the baptism with the Holy Spirit as someone taking me up and dipping me down into the Holy Spirit like I'd baptize somebody in this baptistry. And when I came out, I'd be all saturated with the Holy Spirit, and, and I would all, all of a sudden preach a sermon, and the whole world would get saved on that one sermon. What I looked for, by the way, never came. Because what I looked for was not what the Bible taught about the Holy Spirit. Now, I think I can help you this morning by answering four questions. Number one, what do we mean by the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Number two, how can we have it? Number three, when can we have it? And number four, what happens when we get it? Now, I'll answer those four questions very scripturally, and the only argument you're going to have this morning is not going to be with me. The only argument you're going to have this morning is going to be with the Bible. Because I'm not going to tell you what I believe, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. I have learned that our experience is not the principle, but the Bible is the experience, is, is the principle. And if our experience does not harmonize with what the Bible teaches, the Bible's not wrong, our experience is wrong. I've had some discussions with some who claim they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when I show them what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, they say, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know what happened to me, and you're not going to talk me out of my experience. And I say, all right, I won't talk you out of your experience, but I'll tell you one thing. If your experience doesn't harmonize with the Bible, your experience is wrong. The Bible's not wrong. And so we'll see what the Bible says. Number one, what do we mean by the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's not writing to unsaved people. He's writing to saved people. And to saved people, he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's two commands in that verse. The first command says, Be not drunk with wine. If I were to ask a good, separated, fundamental, Bible-believing Christian the question, Is it wrong to get drunk? You would say, yes, it's wrong. Is it sinful to get drunk? Yes, it's sinful to get drunk. Should a preacher preach against being drunk? Yes, a preacher should preach against being drunk. All right. 
But that verse has two commands in it. The first command is, Be not drunk with wine. And the second command is, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if it's a sin not, if it's a sin to get drunk, let me ask you another question. Is it a sin not to be filled with the Holy Spirit? For you to say it's not a sin not to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be inconsistent. Because the same Bible and the same verse and the same chapter and the same book by the same writer gives two commands, and there's no other words in the verse that places more importance on one of those commands than it does on the other. To me, so far as I can see in Ephesians 5, 18, it's just as wrong for a Christian not to be filled with the Holy Spirit as it is for him to go out and get drunk. You don't hear much preaching like that. And the result is not many Christians ever are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the same God in the same Bible in the same verse says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Every believer ought to be filled with the Spirit of God. You cannot begin to be the Christian you ought to be without the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, By their fruits ye shall know them. And oftentimes a pastor comes along and says, Well, their fruits is love and peace and joy and gentleness and long-suffering and so on. They're not saved if they don't have these things. But again, that's a mis- Interpretation of the Scriptures because Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19 and following, says that love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and so on is not the fruit of a Christian, but it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the things that are evident in the believer's life when he's absolutely surrendered to the Holy Spirit who indwells him. These are produced by the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. What is the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Number one, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit coming into your heart. Now, after I read this book and had a hunger for His fullness, I prayed like this. Oh, dear God, uh, give me the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, send the Holy Spirit. Let Him fill me. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Nothing ever happened. Because the Holy Spirit was in my heart while I was praying. You see, the Holy Spirit comes into the believer to take up his permanent residence the moment you're saved. Romans 8 9 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's as plain as it can be. You say it's a matter of interpretation. How do you interpret that? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He doesn't belong to Christ. He is not a Christian. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says what? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, which is in you, and you're not your own, but you're bought with a price. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, which is in you. Speaking to Christians. I'll give you another verse. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, he has given you the spirit of his Son, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. That means because you are God's child by faith in Jesus Christ, he's done something. He's given you the spirit of his Son, whereby you cry out Father. Now, why did he give you the spirit of his Son? Because you tarried? Because you prayed? Because you fasted? Because you cleaned your heart out? No, he gave you the Holy Spirit because you're sons. Galatians 4, 6, in your Bible, everybody's Bible here. 
And how did you become his son? John 1, 12 says, As many as received him, that is Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Galatians 3, 26 says, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Every person who's a son of God became a son of God by putting his faith, his trust, his dependence in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to become God's son. And because you are sons, he's given you the spirit of his son, whereby ye cry, the Father. I've heard folks say, well, have you got the Holy Ghost? If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. If he's not in your heart, you're not saved. You say, well, I don't know about you, but that's not the way it happened with me. I was saved when I was 15, and I received the Holy Spirit when I was 18. No, you were saved when you was 18. You say, you're not going to talk me out of it. I'm not trying to. I'm what the Bible says. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is N-O-N-E, none of his. How can you be born again apart from the Holy Spirit? That's the way you're born again. You are born not of corruptible seed, but the Bible said, being born again of the Spirit. John chapter 3 and Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. And the Bible said the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. It's the down payment. It's part of the inheritance itself. The earnest is part of the, of the thing itself. You give earnest money, you owe $100 on a card. Give $10 earnest money, it means you only owe 90 The 10 is part of the 100 And when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, that's actually a part of your inheritance already in you. You already have a part of heaven inside you if you're saved, and it shouldn't be too much trouble for you to live like you're already in heaven if you tried hard enough. You have the earnest, the down payment, part of the real thing. The, Holy, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit coming into your heart. Secondly, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not receiving more of the Holy Spirit. And here's where I was wrong. I could visualize my heart as some kind of a receptacle, like a glass. And I visualize the Holy Spirit as a substance. And I'd pray, oh, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. And I could visualize God pouring, like out of a, a container, a little more of the Holy Spirit into my heart, and as I begged and played, he'd pour a little more into my heart. As I begged and played, he'd pour a little more into my heart, until eventually my heart would be full of the Holy Spirit. There's two mistakes with that reasoning. Number one, my heart is not a receptacle. And if a fella had his heart filled with the Holy Spirit and had a transplant, plant, he'd lose his fullness. Your heart is a pump with blood in it. Sometimes the word heart in the Bible refers to the mind, where it says, I have not seen, ear hath not seen, neither hath it entered into the heart of man. It means mind. It never has crossed man's mind, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Sometimes the word heart means the mind, the place where you make your decisions. Second mistake in that sort of reasoning was, not only my heart was not a receptacle, but the second reasoning is, the Holy Spirit is not a substance like water in a jug. The Holy Spirit is a person. We say we believe in the Trinity. We believe there's one God manifest in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, only one God. We believe Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. But we also believe the Holy Spirit is God, and the reason we believe it is because the Bible says it. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, Ananias and his wife Sapphira agreed together to sell their possessions and hold back part of the money for themselves. 
and carry the remainder and lay it at the disciples' feet. And they did it. And when they brought it and laid it at the apostle Peter's feet, Peter said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie unto God or to the Holy Ghost? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. In one sentence, he uses the Holy Ghost and God synonymous. Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? You have not lied to men, but God. Holy Ghost, God. Same. We say that Jesus Christ lives in our heart, but does he? We say to little children, have you asked Jesus into your heart, but does he live in your heart? The Bible said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, that he's on the Father's throne in heaven. When Stephen was stoned, he looked up to heaven and said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and following says that Jesus Christ endured the shame, despised the cross, and is now set down on the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's in heaven on the right hand of the Father, on the Father's throne. Well, you say, I thought all my life he was in my heart. He is in your heart. Well, you say, how can he be in heaven and be in my heart? He's in your heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's in your life. He came in to take up his permanent residence the moment you were saved. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a substance, and your heart is not a receptacle. Listen carefully. The Holy Spirit is a person. Read John chapter 16. Jesus said, It's expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I go away, I'll pray the Father, and he'll send you another Comforter. And when he is come, not it, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal it, it's he. When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. He will bring all things to your remembrance. He will teach you all things. He, 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 the Holy Spirit's a person. Not a substance. You can't have any more of a person than the person. When I married my wife, I got the whole thing. You say, you're calling your wife a thing? Well, Proverbs said, whosoever finds a wife finds a good thing. <laughs> I didn't get the arm one day and the leg next day. And, uh, of course, nowadays you could get the hair one day and the eyelashes the next day. You can't have any more of a person than a person. And here I was praying, Oh, God, send the Holy Spirit. Let him come into my heart and fill me and fill me. And I had all the Holy Spirit I was going to ever have. And he came in the day I was saved, according to the Scriptures. And when I looked in the Bible and recognized this from the Bible, I accepted that fact. I forgot about all the experiences I'd read out of deeper experiences of famous Christians. I forgot about his 13-point covenant. I forgot about uh, A.J. Gordon's prayer. I forgot about Savonarola's four-hour trance. I forgot everything else and said, I'll take what the Bible said. The Holy Spirit is a person who lives in my heart, who came into my heart the day I was received Jesus Christ as my Savior. He's been there ever since, and he'll never leave me, because the Bible said, I'll send you another comforter, and he will never leave you. And the Bible said, we are sealed by him until the day of redemption. He never, 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 never leaves us. Well, I said, if the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not even coming into my heart, if the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not me receiving more of the Holy Spirit, then what is the fullness of the Holy Spirit? And here's what it is. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit having the complete control of your life. Are you listening? He is the resident in every believer's heart, but he is not the president in every believer's heart. He resides in every believer's heart. 
but he not, does not preside in every believer's heart. He indwells you, but he does not necessarily infill you. He came in when you were saved. So I said, he's a person. He's in my heart. And then I began reading more verses, and here's one verse that really opened it to me. It's James chapter 4, verse 5, where the Bible said, Do you think the Scripture says in vain that the Spirit which dwelleth in you lusteth to envy? Listen carefully. When I first read that verse, I said, There's something wrong here. This sounds like the Holy Spirit is lusting. And I thought of the word lust as being something ugly. I thought of the word lust as a man lusting after a woman or vice versa. And I said, it says here, the Holy Spirit lusted. But actually, the word lust simply means a strong desire. And so I reread the verse. Do you think the Scripture says in vain that the Spirit which dwelleth in you has a strong desire to envy? Does he have a desire to envy? No. He has a strong desire to the point of being envious. And the word dwelleth means to take up permanent residence. So I'll paraphrase it. Do you think the Holy Spirit... Do you think the Scripture says in vain that the Holy Spirit, who has taken up his permanent residence in your life, has a strong desire even to the point of being envious? Now I'm beginning to see it. The Holy Spirit came into me the moment I was saved. He will never leave me. He's there as long as there's a world. But the Holy Spirit who came into me when I was an 11-year-old boy, now when I was praying as a 24-, 5-year-old young man, for his fullness, the Holy Spirit had been in my heart since I was 11 years old. And while I was praying, oh, God, fill me. Oh, God, fill me. Oh, God, send the Holy Spirit. Let me have him, please, Lord. While I was praying, the Holy Spirit in my heart, though I did not hear him, was having a strong desire, even to the point of being envious. And what was that desire he had that was so strong it was making him envious? Galatians 5, 17, right in your Bible, says the flesh has a strong desire lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit has a strong desire lusteth against the flesh, and these two are contrary one to the other. There were two things in my life that were lusting. One of them was my flesh, my old Adamic sinful nature. It had a strong desire, and the Holy Spirit had a strong desire, and the desire of one was contrary to the desire of the other. That's what Paul meant when he talked about his old man. He wasn't talking about his daddy. He's talking, he's talking about a part of himself, his old Adamic nature. A little fellow stood out in front of the house, and his mother said, Don't go back down to Billy's house and play anymore. But he disobeyed and went down. So she warned him a second time, If you go down again, disobey, I'll spank you. And again, he just disobeyed and went down the road and went to play with Billy again. She said to him, Bob, what made you do it? He said, I was standing out in front of the house on the street, and he said, The, the devil was pulling me up this way towards Billy's house, and Jesus was pulling me back towards the yard, and he said, the devil just out pulled Jesus, he said. Did you know that goes on in every believer's life constantly? You say, not yours, Dr. Hudson. Oh, yeah, mine more than anybody's. I mean, he really pulls at me. I think the more you get involved in the service of God and the more active you get for God, and I think the more the devil works on you. It wouldn't be too much if he could get somebody who's not known, make them fall, but if you get a fundamental independent Baptist preacher, puts emphasis on soul winning, is against uh, neo-evangelicalism, modernism, liberalism, he can make him fall. Boy, the newspapers have something to write about for months. 
They wouldn't write us up out here. You know, we have 85 people saved every week and have had over two years. They hadn't wrote it up in the newspaper. If I run off somebody's wife tomorrow and hit headlines. They'll put it on UPI. One of the 100 top Sunday schools in America. Two years ago, recognized the fastest growing church in America. Pastor runs away with the organist or the pianist. Or <laughs> it hit headlines. War likes to get a hold of that kind of thing. The Holy Spirit is not receiving more of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is not receiving more of the Holy Spirit. He's in your heart. He has a strong desire, even to the point of being envious. Listen. And the desire is against the flesh, and the flesh desires against the Spirit. And this battle is on, and it's on, and it's on, and it's on, and it leaves me in the middle. God made me a free moral agent so I can make my own decision. I can say yes to my flesh, or I can say yes to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll give you my experience. And it doesn't coincide with everybody else's experience, so I'm a little hesitant to give it. But my experience after praying and praying and praying was something like this. I said, Dear Lord, I see the truth of the fullness of the Holy Spirit as taught in the Bible. The Holy Spirit's a person who came into my heart the moment I was saved. He's been there since I was 11 years old. And I see, dear Lord, according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit has a strong desire for the complete control of my life, even to the point that he's envious if I let the flesh have the least bit control. Then I said something like this, Dear God. I don't think the Holy Spirit wants to control me and fill me any more than I want to be controlled and filled by him. It looks like we get together on this thing. And then I prayed a simple prayer like this, the best I know how, dear Jesus. The only thing that will keep me from being controlled by the Holy Spirit is I won't know what he's leading me to do. And that won't be my fault, that'll be your fault. But if you'll make the leading of the Holy Spirit clear and definite in my life, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere, I'll be anything. It doesn't make any difference, I'll do it. It was a simple decision, but I meant it, and God knew I meant it. My experience since that time has been that I've become more sensitive to his leadership. Immediately after making that decision, I'd have desires, and, and the big thing then was to determine whether or not this desire was the leading of the Holy Spirit or if it was some selfish motivation. Maybe have a desire to increase the size of the church, increase the size of the building, win more people, have more in Sunday school, and then the devil would say to me, that's just you. You want, to be a, you want to just build a big church, build a big church. Then I'd fight. And I'd say, dear God, if you'll make it clear, I'll do it. And then I'd fight my motive. And then I had to learn a, an entirely new lesson on how to know when God is leading. And there's about five or six things that I can't share with you here. I'll get off the message too far. But I was sincere, Lord, I want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And you know, I still remind God of that every day I live. It's not a once-for-all thing. Bang! I yield for the control of the Holy Spirit and then go on my merry way because the Spirit can lead me to do something and I say no to Him and at that moment I cease to be controlled by Him. I'm again controlled by the flesh. Everything you do is motivated either by your carnal nature or by your spiritual nature, one or the other. So that you're called a carnal Christian if you constantly obey the flesh or you're called a spiritual Christian if you constantly obey the Holy Spirit, First Corinthians chapter 3. It was that easy and simple for me. You say, didn't you feel any cold chills go up your back? I felt a lot of them. My wife pulled ice water down my back. But that's not the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You say, didn't your hair stand on ends? But if, it, if that was a requirement, Dr. Porter couldn't have it. Because he don't have any hair to stand on ends. You say, didn't you, didn't you, uh, didn't you uh, pass out? No, it didn't pass out. 
I just yielded for the Holy Spirit's control and said, the best I know how from here on, I'll be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So that brings me to the second question about the Holy Spirit, how to be filled. And I'll give you one word, yield. One word, yield. You say, now, wait a minute. On the day of Pentecost, they prayed, and they prayed, and they fasted, and they tarried, and they prayed, and we're all in one accord. Don't you think, Dr. Hudson, we can get all the church on their knees praying and get them in one accord? The Holy Spirit will come? No, I don't. I don't think he will because he's already come. He came on the day of Pentecost never to leave. You say, now, you're telling me that the Holy Spirit didn't come because they prayed? That's exactly what I'm telling you. You say, I've heard good preachers say he came because they prayed. I don't care what you heard. The Holy Spirit came because Jesus prayed. Jesus said, I'll pray the Father. He will send you another comforter. That's for the day of Pentecost. Now, you're telling me that a few days later on the day of Pentecost, they prayed and God answered their prayer. No, Jesus said, I'm going to pray the Father. He will send you another comforter. And the Holy Spirit would have came on the day of Pentecost if they had been eating peanut butter sandwiches. Because Jesus prayed the Father to send the comforter, and he came. He didn't come in an answer to their prayer. He came in an answer to the prayer of Jesus Christ. I'll pray the Father. He will send the comforter. That's it. That's the way it happened. Now, I'm glad they were praying, by the way. But you don't get the fullness of the Holy Spirit by praying and getting in one accord. You get the, that, it may get you in one accord. But you get it by recognizing he's a person who lives in your heart and you yield for his complete control in your life. Third thing I want to answer is, when does it happen? And this is an important question, because so many people think there must be a period of time that lapses between the time you're saved and the time you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And most every case I know of, it's true that there is a period of time, but there need not be that period of time. Now, like I was saved when I was 11 years old, but I never understood the fullness of the Holy Spirit till I was 24, 25 years old. Now, you don't need to wait 13, 14 years. If somebody tell you the truth of the matter... Immediately after you're saved, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit the very same day. By the way, I was reading Charles G. Finney's experience in that same book, and I was reading revival lectures by Charles Finney this week. And Charles Finney claims that he was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time. Prayed. Same time. It, there need not be a time lapse between the time you trust Jesus Christ as Savior and the time you recognize the Holy Spirit lives in your heart and you completely yield to him for his absolute control of your life. There need not be a time lapse. Now, come to the last question I want to answer, and that is, how do we know we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then keep reading, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are a joyous, happy Christian. You sing, make melody in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean if a fellow can't sing, he's not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I'm, to I'm talking about here, he's happy, speaking and singing and making melody in his heart to God. That's praise, that's singing, that's happiness. The Holy Spirit produces happiness. Read the next verse, verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes you thankful when you feel the Holy Spirit. You'll be happy. You'll be thankful. You'll have gratitude. Verse 21. <laughs> Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as to the Lord. I don't care how much a woman jumps up and jabbers in tongues and says she feels the Holy Spirit. If she's not obedient to her husband, she's not filled with the Holy Spirit. 
get sort of quiet here. Come on now. You can't tell by the honk of the horn how much gas is in the tank. I know a lot of folks completely out of gas on the side of the road blowing their horn hoping somebody will stop. And I've learned from being in the country that the wagon that makes the most racket usually has the lightest load. And I've also learned that if you want a, a tea kettle to whistle fast, don't put much water in it. It takes it a long time. It's got a lot of... I know, because I boil water every morning for a cup of coffee. And I just put just enough for a cup full so it'll get hot real quick. You fill it full, it takes a long time before it starts boiling. That little thing starts saying... <whistles> but the difference is when it's full of water, it'll... <whistles> a long time. Now, you'll feel the Holy Spirit when a wife is submitting herself to her husband as unto the Lord. And a husband feels the Holy Spirit when he loves his wife as his own body. And you keep on reading. You keep on reading. And you keep reading. You read all the way through the Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Jesus said, When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll have power, and you'll be a witness. You'll win people to Jesus Christ. Then it's strange that there's a big movement on today. A big movement on today, and it's right here in Atlanta. Atlanta's full of it. It says the evidence of the fullness, or they say the baptism, but it's not the baptism, it's the fullness. They say the evidence of the fullness is speaking in tongues. That is not in the Bible. The evidence of the fullness is power to witness, being a, an obedient wife to the husband, being a happy Christian. There's not one verse that says when you feel the Holy Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. It's just not in your Bible, nor in theirs either. You say, I know a lot of folks that believe that. You know a lot of folks that believe something's not in the Bible. You say, well, on the day of Pentecost, doesn't it say they all began to speak with tongues? No. It says they began to... It says, first of all, there came a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Second, a cloven tongues of fire lit on their shoulders. Thirdly, they spoke in other languages, not an unknown tongue. If you doubt it, turn over to Acts chapter 2 and 3 and read it. It just says it in your Bible. They spoke in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them others. Keep reading, and it says all those men there from the foreign countries said, How hear we every man in his own tongue wherein we were born? didn't say, How hear we every man this heavenly language and understand it. It says we're all hearing it in our tongue we were born in. They were not jabbering. They were speaking in the languages of the people present on their Pentecost. And it doesn't take a scholar to see that if you want to read it for yourself. Isn't it strange? People talk about having a Pentecostal experience. I had a Pentecostal experience and I got the Holy Ghost and I spoke in tongues. Well, you dirty hypocrite, you. The tongues was the last thing. The sound of the mighty rushing wind was the first thing, and the cloven tongues of fire was the second thing. Why didn't you get the sound of the mighty rushing wind first, like like they did on Pentecost? Why didn't the cloven tongues of fire light on your shoulders second, like it did on the day of Pentecost? Why did you miss the first two and get the last one? Because you can imitate the last one. You can't imitate the first two. That's why. You're welcome. Don't freeze up on me. You say you're against somebody, not against anybody. I'm just for the Bible. If I would not answer the Bible, I'd quit preaching. If I didn't preach what it said, I'd just quit. No. The evidence is not speaking in tongues. The evidence is power to be a more effective witness. The evidence is joy. 
The evidence is obedience to the husband and the husband loving the wife. That's the evidence of what the Bible says it is. Jesus didn't say, tarry in Jerusalem until you speak in tongues, but he said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. That's it. Do you know why they spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost? Because Jesus had a language barrier to get over. There were thousands of people there. Why? Because 3,000 got saved after they got through preaching. I know there's at least 3,000 there. Because 3,000 were saved. Thousands of people were there, and Jesus wanted them to hear the gospel and be saved. But the people who knew the message and knew how to tell them how to be saved couldn't speak in their language. They'd never been to language school. So Jesus said, listen, I want these folks to hear the gospel. And he wanted to hear the gospel so bad that he supernaturally allowed those men to speak in the languages of the people present. Not to put the emphasis on speaking in the languages, but to put the emphasis on the importance of getting the gospel out to those who had never heard it. And then somebody comes along and reads it and puts the emphasis on the tongues more than getting the message to those that did not hear it. They forgot that 3,000 got saved, and they talked more about them talking in tongues than the 3,000 that got saved. The main thing is the 3,000 got saved. Don't you see that? That's like me bringing you a million dollars in a brown paper bag. And you dump the million dollars out and run through the house shouting and waving the brown paper bag. <laughs> Calling glory to God. Everybody ought to have a brown paper bag. It's wonderful to have brown paper bags. I think you're some kind of a nut. <laughs> and the tongues was only a means of conveyance, like the brown paper bag is a means of conveyance, bringing the money. It was what was said to the people. You say, how do you know they preach salvation? How do you think 3,000 got saved? If somebody didn't tell them how to get saved. Why do you know they preached? I know they had to preach how to get saved because 3,000 got saved. You see, the important thing on the day of Pentecost was getting the message out to poor sinners who needed to be saved. And God leaped over a language barrier said, Good night, I've got to get these people saved. They've got to hear the gospel. You men don't know all these foreign languages, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you speak in those languages now. So those people can hear the gospel. I believe in speaking in tongues like that. The only thing is, I'd be a nut to speak in Chinese this morning. When most of you don't even know English well. (laughs) It's better for me to speak in Georgia language. (laughs) J. Harold Smith told this experience. He said it under his tent one night. said a man came in he'd never seen before. Said in the middle of the service, a fellow got up and began to speak in a language he had never heard. Sat down and left. Said a few nights later, this man came back who had been there the night the fellow got up and spoke in this language. Gerald Smith said the man came to him with an interpreter and said to him, I'm from Russia. I came here to America just looking around. and said, I wanted to go to a gospel meeting and your tent was up and advertise a meeting, and I wanted to come see what a gospel meeting was all about. He said, I came, but I had no interpreter with me. He said, I didn't understand the words you said. I didn't understand the word they said while they were singing. I don't know English. But he said, somewhere along the middle of your service, that some fellow stood up over here and began to speak in a perfect Russian tongue. and told me how much Jesus Christ loved me and told me how he died for me. He told me to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And said, so he sat down. He said, I went out from under the tent that night, and I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I come back tonight to bring an interpreter to tell you that experience. I've never had that happen for me, 
But I believe that was scriptural speaking in tongues. If God wanted to leap a, a language barrier so a man could hear the gospel, I believe God's able to do that. He did do it on the day of Pentecost. It would be a rare, rare exception. It certainly wouldn't be the general rule. If I was in some foreign country and I was the only fellow who knew how to tell people how to get saved, and I couldn't speak in their language, I believe if God so willed that he could fix it so I could speak in their language enough to tell them how to be saved. And I may not even know myself what I was saying. But isn't it strange? Most of these tongue-speaking people send their missionaries to language school. As a matter of fact, there's not a tongue speaker in America that's gone to the mission field who did not go to language school. Isn't that rather contradictory? And be honest. Come on. Don't look at me like a snowball. Come on. Don't freeze up on me. If they can speak in tongues supernaturally, why, why waste the time in a language school, learn the language, just get over there and start jabbering in their language and let them hear it? There'd be no need for language schools. Rather inconsistent. Now, the important thing, my friend, is getting the gospel out, telling poor sinners you're lost. And you're going to hell if you don't accept Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you can trust him, depend on him, and be saved. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNBBC.com for Christian music you can trust.